It's the quieting of the brain that causes this unity awareness, not extra activity in the brain in one part of the brain or another. So to me, it's telling us that, in fact, it's not the brain that's creating our mystical unit of awareness. It's the lowering of the brain activity that allows, in a certain sense, these filters that are in the way. And when we remove the filters or reduce the filters, then we can experience this wider awareness of things going on around us. Hello and welcome to the Further Reaches podcast. My name is Kaz Tanner and I'm your host. Today, my guest is a neuroscientist who explores research at the boundary between when neuroscience and mystical experience meet. And when I say mystical experience, some people refer to these experiences as a state of deep flow or as a peak experience. But broadly speaking, these experiences include feelings of bliss, ecstasy, unconditional love, interconnectedness and oneness with all. So Dr. Marjorie Woolacott, my guest, is an emeritus professor and prior chair of the Department of Human Physiology and a member of the Institute of Neuroscience at the University of Oregon. Her latest book is called Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. And Dr. Willicott and I explore research topics including near-death experiences, psilocybin research, And for those of you who don't know, psilocybin is the psychoactive compound found in magic mushrooms, the placebo effect and energy healing. We also talk a bit about the limitations of language in trying to describe the ineffable nature of mystical experiences. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Marjorie Willicott, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the Further Reaches podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I came across your work from watching a presentation you did in 2019 at a conference called Beyond the Brain, and your presentation had an intriguing title. It was called Impossible Truths, Exploring Research at the Boundary Where Neuroscience and Mystical Experience Meet. So I would love today to talk about the things that you presented in that talk. And so to start with, I'd love to hear what was your scientific view when you started your career and what happened to you? Yeah, so when I started my career, As a graduate student in neuroscience, I was absolutely a materialist, and that is because when you go through the university, even now in most Western countries, um, whether it's Europe, United States, around the world, you're really taught that material reality is the basis of everything in um, our universe. And so, for example, it is my neurons in my brain that create my awareness, my consciousness, et cetera. And If my neurons aren't active, it means that I am unconscious, for example. And if the neurons die, of course, my consciousness disappears. And so what happened to me is that I had been going along with that understanding from all of my graduate student work. And I was doing research in rehabilitation medicine and neuroscience. And I really enjoyed the research. And I also should say that I thought that anyone that didn't believe that 
the materialist worldview was accurate, was somehow weak-minded. And I still remember when I was a young um, student in college, we would have a family reunion with um, my um, relatives from the East Coast and my uncle, who was a PhD, um, I think perhaps at MIT um, in um, physics, would get to um, the corner of the room with me and we would have our own quiet discussion about the people that believed in spirituality that were in the rest of my family and how we were the ones that had the real understanding of the universe. And that then, of course, began to reverse when I think it was, I was about 30 years old. I had been doing neuroscience research for a while and I was a postdoctoral fellow and I was about to go to a new um, research career in a university in Virginia. And my sister invited me to go to a meditation retreat. And I should say that I was intrigued by the idea of going to the meditation retreat because she had uh, actually had, had given me an experience which was surprising to me when I was a little bit frightened about getting on a plane to go home after a Christmas holiday with my parents because there had been a major plane crash in the region. And she said she could see my fear as we were going up um, toward um, the uh, on-ramp for the plane. And she said to me, I have something that may help you. And at that point, I was ready for some sort of help. And she said, here is a mantra. And she gave me this mantra, which is simply the mantra Soham, which is something that you repeat with your in-breath and your out-breath. And she said, try it. And when I got on the plane and started repeating that mantra, for some reason that I couldn't explain with my scientific mind, all of my fear went away and I began to enjoy the plane trip. And I still remember looking out at the clouds that were outside of the airplane and thinking, wow, this is the most beautiful experience I've almost ever had. So that was the thing that opened me up to actually being willing to go to this meditation retreat, which she invited me to then that summer. And so from your neuroscience perspective, what is happening in the brain when you do something like a so-hum mantra meditation? What's actually happening? Well, so, you know, in the neuroscience perspective, I think what um, a neuroscientist would simply say, oh, is that's probably activating your parasympathetic nervous system and it's calming you down a little bit. And maybe your sympathetic nervous system, the flight fight um, system is probably out of hand in those moments of um, concern or anxiety. And so you're simply calming yourself down. And I would say, well, you know, that's certainly possibly one of the things that's contributing to it. But for me, it went well beyond that. That is not something that ever was able Able to happen to me before um, with other techniques I tried to use when I was on plane flights and I was anxious. So it seems to me that my neuroscience perspective probably says something about physiologically what changes in our brain when we become calm and um, able to be fully present in the moment. But I don't think it tells us necessarily the source of what is happening. It just tells us the neurophysiological correlates of what is happening. And I, I know that after you first experience meditation on that plane ride that you then went to a retreat with your sister and you had another powerful experience in meditation. Would you mind sharing what happened there and this like dimension of reality that you hadn't experienced before? Right. So what happened is, first of all, um, when I agreed to go to the meditation retreat, I was skeptical because I am a neuroscientist, but I was also curious. And I think that plane ride made me curious to just say, well, you know, what really is going on with meditation? And so what happened is in the very first morning of this retreat, we were told that this a meditation teacher, the Swami, was going to come around and initiate every individual there. And the initiation was going to happen through the Swami's touch. 
So this is what I was prepared for. And as I said, I was skeptical, but I thought, hey, I'm going to put my skepticism aside for the weekend and I'm just going to be seeing what is actually happening. And when this meditation master came to me, he actually put his fingers between my eyes and on the bridge of my nose. And I could feel the exact point where he was touching me. And I had my eyes closed, but my senses were otherwise fully engaged. So when I felt something that seemed like a electric current, almost like a mini lightning bolt, go from his fingers down into my center of my being and stop right at the center of my chest, like right at the point where the heart is, but not my physical heart, but more like a heart than I'd ever experienced my physical heart to be. And I began to feel energy like radiating out that felt like this pure love and pure joy, like nectar flowing through me and out um, beyond me. I was like utterly convinced of the realness of that experience. And I remember that words went through my mind when I was experiencing this incredible love and joy. And those were, I'm home, I'm home. My heart is my home. And it was a shock to me. It was like the science to me is saying, what on earth just happened to you? Because now this other dimension of reality of an energy that I had never experienced before was now apparent to me in those moments. And, and I remember that when I left that meditation retreat and I got on the plane to go back home to my university position now in Virginia, I kept wondering what on earth had happened to me? Because the next morning, spontaneously, I got up at 5 a.m. to meditate. And I did it day after day after day. And I did it because I now sensed that there was this amazing joy and peaceful awareness just simmering under my usual thoughts and waiting for me to tap into any time I wanted to. Mm, that's so beautiful. And I, I know that you describe that after that experience, you felt like there was like a chasm between the part of you that was a neuroscientist and the part of you that then became a meditator. And um, since then, you've been trying to act as a bridge between those two worlds. Along with meditation research, what are some of the other lines of evidence are there that show that consciousness is actually fundamental and not necessarily generated by the brain? I think probably the strongest evidence, as far as I'm concerned, and I think probably most of the people doing research in consciousness would agree are near-death experiences. And this is because the research, first of all, has been done on near-death experiences by MDs that are psychiatrists and cardiovascular um, MDs in very, very carefully controlled studies. And I'll just give you an example of one of the studies. So Tim Van Lommel and Bruce Grayson and others have done very similar studies that they call prospective studies. And what this means is that they start the study at a particular moment in time on a particular date, and they start the study in like a network of hospitals around a particular country. In Pim Van Mommel's case, it was in the Netherlands. And they bring every single person that has cardiac arrest in the hospital into the study. If the person survives the cardiac arrest, they then ask the person afterwards, did anything unusual happen to you during the cardiac arrest? And what they find is that in about somewhere between 12 and say 20% of the people, they say, yes, there was something that happened. And then they ask the person to describe it. 
And in 25% of the people that have what then um, ends up being a near-death experience, the people describing actually having their awareness leave their body during cardiac arrest with flat EEG, no brain activity that can be recorded in the cortex. And they often hover above the body in the operating room or the resuscitation room as they watch all of the medical personnel trying to resuscitate them. And they hear and they see everything going on in the room. And sometimes they also may move down the hall out of their body and hear things, for example, their family talking about them in the waiting room down the hall. And the point is that when they then are resuscitated and they come back to normal awareness in the recovery room, they tell the doctors, all these things that happened, which they should not have been able to know because they had cardiac arrest and they had a flat EEG. So there are data that I don't think can be explained from my own materialist perspective, because the point is that even if you can say, well, maybe the person um, really didn't have like their their heart like completely stopped for long enough for their brain to go flatlined, even though there are the data there, they are seeing things in the operating room from a perspective that is above their body. And they are able, again, to hear and know things that happened down the hall. And there is no way if your consciousness is confined to a brain that is now not functioning that those things could happen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Eben Alexander's work, but yes, I am. Yes, yeah, he wrote a book called Proof of Heaven, and in part of it, he's also um, a neuroscientist, and he yes. goes through and he goes like point by point of how his near-death experience couldn't be explained by any of the materialist theories because his whole neocortex was offline, his limbic system wasn't working. So yeah, I I loved reading his book and hearing that, especially from his perspective. Another thing about near-death experiences that I find fascinating is how many people who have a near-death experience, they come back changed and their perspective on life and death is quite different. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I think that that's the other very fascinating thing. And again, Bruce Grayson, Pim Van Lommel, and others have described these changes afterwards. And I think in Pim Van Lommel's study, he followed these people up for, I think, maybe even eight years after the NDE. And what they note is that typically there is a fundamental shift in their own understanding about what I would call the fundamental nature of consciousness. They now know that consciousness survives the physical body dying, for example. And beyond that, there also appears to happen something where they begin to feel a new sense of connectedness between themselves and all the other beings on earth. And they feel a compassion for other human beings and they feel a love and they often change their careers, change the way they're doing things afterwards. And you mentioned Eben Alexander, and I think that he's a perfect example of that. He is no longer a neurosurgeon like he used to be because now he is wanting to like share with others the information and the research about the fundamental nature of consciousness. And so he has shifted his own career um, due to his near-death experience. I have another example too of a woman that I interviewed for my book, Infant Awareness. It's Bettina Payton, who was also an MD. And when she had her near-death experience during the birth of her third child, when she came back, she had the same total awareness that consciousness is fundamental now. And what she did in terms of her own transformation is she began to work now in hospice care because she said, that's the time when we are going through a transition 
to death, to the other side. And she said, so often the family of these patients and the doctors and the nurses have a fear of death and they're trying to do everything they can to prevent the phenomenon of death from happening. But these people are now in this liminal zone where they're about to transition to the other side. And she said, she had a way of Actually, as she walked into the room, she said people could fear, could feel her lack of fear. And her lack of fear of death allowed them to be very, very present and very, very calm. And they could feel the love that she radiated because she knew that death was not the end of awareness. And it changed everything in the room around the patients and the people around them. Mm, that's so beautiful. Um, I'm curious, do you think that people hearing these stories of near-death experiences, do you think it significantly changes people when they, they hear about it? Because it's one thing to have the experience yourself, you have that subjective experience, like you know it's real and you're changed. What do you think are the effects on the people who are maybe friends and, and family members, or even people who you know might might read a book written by someone like Eben Alexander? Yeah, here's the interesting point about your question. It depends on the curiosity of the person listening. And I'll tell you two different ways that it seems to work. I know that, for example, when I've talked to Bruce Grayson, who has written his own book called After about all of his research on near-death experiences, he said that hearing the near-death experiences of his patients began to change him and he became curious. Um, he said when I think the first um, patient he heard gave him her story of her near-death experience, when in fact, I think she was um, in a coma from an overdose of, um, of some sort of narcotics when she was very depressed in college. Um, and she told him that he came to her when she was in her coma and he had a, a spot of, I think it was ketchup or something like that on his tie. He was shocked because he knew he did and there was no way she could have known that. And he, <laughs> he said at that point, he was still a young intern. He just put it aside until later he began to hear more stories and gradually his curiosity opened him up to start doing research in the whole area. And I think Pim Van Lommel doing research said the same thing, that when he first heard those stories from his patients, he couldn't believe they were true. But when more and more patients told him, he became curious and it changed his whole point of view. So that's one way that things change. But I also know of patients that tell their story to their family and their doctor. And in one case, Leslie Lupo is the woman that this happened to in Tucson, and she's written a book about her near-death experience. Her family did not want to hear about it, and they kept saying, it was a hallucination, it was not real, please stop talking about it. And finally, her MD actually said to her, if you talk one more time about that experience, we are going to send you across the street to the psychiatric unit, and you will be drugged because you are having hallucinations. And of course, she stopped instantly sharing it. And that was out of fright in this case that people were not taking her seriously. So those people were close-minded and they couldn't believe it was true. So I think what I'm realizing the more I do research in this area is all that the person having the experience is asking of their friends and family and their medical um, workers is just be open to listening and be curious and don't make an instantaneous judgment about whether it is real or whether it is not real. Mm, yeah, so it all depends on your worldview and how attached you are to it versus yes. how open-minded you are to changing. Um, when you were talking about the fear of death in patients, it reminded me of 
um, the psilocybin research, which he mentioned in the presentation, which was um, terminal cancer patients who uh, took part in a psilocybin research study, their fear of death was reduced. Um, would you mind telling us about that? Sure. And and the people that were doing that particular um, study were um, Barrett and Griffiths from Johns Hopkins University. And these have now been done in a number of um, universities, including New York University, and I'm sure many others. And the understanding is that when a terminal cancer patient um, finds out that they have this terminal diagnosis, often their anxiety um, really, really skyrockets, of course, because of their fear of death and the imminence of the death. And what these people asked Barrett and Griffiths was, um, is there a way that through actually having a psilocybin experience, one might be able to change one's worldview and therefore not have that fear and anxiety for the rest of the days of your life until you actually pass. And so what they then did in a very carefully controlled study, they brought these people in to the hospital and I love the way they did it. They actually created a beautiful room in the hospital that was a little bit like a meditation room with beautiful sacred objects around for the patient and both um, a um, clinical worker and a, a social um, worker there with the person to help like take them through this psilocybin experience. And they carefully controlled the study by giving the person psilocybin in one particular um, session. And then in another session, like a week or two apart, um, giving them a control um, substance, which would not do anything so they could compare um, the person's experiences in the two states. And of course, what they found was that typically these people had the most amazing experience of unity awareness. And I still remember the quote from one of the people that they used in one of their papers, which was the person said, I suddenly had the sense of this awareness, this power that I felt was so sacred. And it's like, I bowed to that power. And then I began to feel this sense of love and joy and oneness. And he said, it was greater than anything I'd ever had before in my life. And the, that's the what I would call the subjective experience from a particular person. But then when you look at their quantitative data, you find that the anxiety of these people goes way down afterwards and they suddenly are no longer af afraid of death. And the other thing that's so important about these experiences is that one dose in one session is enough co to completely transform the person's worldview and to change the rest of their life to transform it. And that is different than any other medical drug that people have used for things like anxiety or other things of that sort. Wow, that's so fascinating. And it really shows the potential of psychedelics to shift people's perspectives and, and worldview. Um, it's funny because today I was having coffee with someone and the topic of near-death experiences came up and they were like, oh, that sounds really like depressing. But I was like, oh no, it's, it's actually funny because it's like very uplifting, I find, to read about people's near-death experiences. And I find a lot of comfort in it. Um, and, and yeah, similar with the fear of death with these terminal cancer patients. I think the more time you spend contemplating death, thinking about death, the more you realize there's actually nothing to be afraid of. Um, 
So yeah, I I quite like thinking and talking about death, but I don't find it depressing at all. Well, yes, I feel the same way. And I just want to say one little thing about that too, because I realized that I was able to be present at the death of both of my parents. And it happened that it um, occurred during some sort of holidays from my university work. So I was able to be in Arizona with them where they both were at each one of their deaths. And I found it was the most amazingly connecting time of our family that we had ever had because they are more vulnerable at that time that they're going through this process. And when their family can be with them, we then get to know them in a whole different way. And we also then learn about the passage so that we're not afraid of our own deaths. And I always feel sad when I occasionally had a cousin who would say, well, no, I didn't want to be there with my mother when she died because I knew her when she was healthy and I didn't want to know her any other way. And it was like, oh, you're missing out on so much that you don't understand. And so I I encourage people to be curious about being with their family members if they're going through that process, because it is so powerful. Yeah. And in our culture, it's really not a normal part to be present at the death and involved in death. And as soon as someone dies, their body is like whisked off, taken away to the morgue. Whereas it used to be that in some traditions, the body would stay for a couple of days and you could you could sit with the body. And I think doing that helps you realize, oh, this person has actually left their physical form it like helps with closure and and helps you to move on so yes yeah it's um it's interesting how our culture has like lost touch with that yeah so um some of the other lines of evidence that you talked about in your presentation were the placebo effect and energy healing. So um, which of those would you like to dive into next? Well let's talk a little bit about the placebo effect because I also think it's fascinating that the medical community totally acknowledges the placebo effect. So in every single study that is done, for example, with a particular um, new clinical drug, um, they always have a, for example, a sugar pill or something like that, that the patient, that a certain portion of the patients are given, that's the control group versus the ones that are getting the drug because they know the placebo effect is powerful. And yet from our materialist perspective, which I had for many years of uh, my own research career, we say that there's no way that something like a sugar pill could actually affect your brain and make a particular malady go away. And yet Here it is. And so I think what's beautiful is when you look carefully at the research that has been done on the placebo effect, they are showing that basically giving a person an inert substance, which um, the person thinks could be or not, they're not sure whether they're going to get the placebo or the regular um, drug might, for example, reduce their pain. They find that in a certain percentage of those patients, the pain is reduced. But now they go a step further and they say, let me look at what's happening in the brain in those patients where the pain is reduced. And they find out that in fact, many of the pain pathways are altered by this person simply believing they might be getting, for example, an analgesic, a substance that would reduce their pain. So just by thinking that you might be getting the substance, you change your pain pathways in the brain. And our neuroscience perspective, that is a materialist perspective, cannot explain how that happens. So to me, that is an example of our consciousness and our um, belief system actually changing our own physiology. Mm. So do you have a theory on um, on how that works? Like, why, why is it that if you believe you're going to get a pill that 
your symptoms can actually lessen. For example, your pain might lessen. And I think that's because if we truly now go with the proposition that consciousness is fundamental, what we're saying is that our conscious awareness and our belief can actually then have what I would call a top-down effect on the neurons in our brain. And by then affecting the neurons in our brain, it can affect the physiology of our entire system. So we're simply saying that, again, it's a two-way street. The brain can affect our awareness. We know that's the case. Um, I can give um, someone a drug and I can, um, that drug like a sleeping pill can put them to sleep. But also I can, through creating an intention or a belief system in their mind that they are getting possibly a very potent drug that can actually change the activity of the neurons in their brain and therefore change their physiology. And again, our materialist worldview cannot explain that. Wow. Something that you mentioned in your presentation that absolutely shocked me was um, with the placebo effect, the doctor's belief could also affect the outcome. Could you explain what that means? Yes. Yeah, so, so in fact, this was a research study by Grace Lee and his college. And I think it was like at National Institute of Mental Health. And what they did, they actually had a group of patients where they had a, get a particular uh, analgesic, for example, that they were using. And they had a control group and a placebo group, but they also manipulated the doctor's um, understanding of what was going on by basically telling the patient, you might be in the placebo group and you might not. Um, but for the doctors, they said, well, there's gonna be one group that will have no possibility of having any analgesic effect at all. And um, the others will be able to have it. And what they found is that when they told the doctors that, this was the case, the doctor's belief system, believing that these patients would not have any possibility of pain relief, they actually had less effect of the placebo than um, in the other particular group where they weren't told this. So by manipulating the doctor's belief system, they actually had one particular group that had the negative understanding of the doctor that there would be no placebo effect strongly affect the patients. And to me, the take-home lesson here is that doctors need to be very careful about their own belief system about a patient's ability to get well, for example. And they need to keep themselves um, as carefully neutral or positive as they can because they may affect a patient's own physiology through their own belief system. Wow, that is just amazing. So if if the doctor was giving a pill and they thought that it was real, it would be more effective than if they thought it was just a sugar pill. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. That is that is the lesson. And and you can think about how many times a doctor comes in and because of some particular quantitative data they have from a test, they may feel that this means that the patient now has, you know, terminal cancer or something like that. And I understand that we need to be honest with patients, but at the same time, I also understand that we need to give patients hope because not all patients die that that, you know, at some point are given a diagnosis of like terminal cancer. Some people have it go into remission, you know, for many, many years. So I think it just means we need as clinicians to be very, very aware of our interactions with our patients and our own beliefs and understandings. Mm -hmm. And so is, is energy healing a similar thing to the placebo effect? Because someone thinks they're going to receive a healing, then that belief helps heal them or 
which is energy healing in like a different category? And the answer is that it is in a different category. And there've been a number of studies now that have done that. And um, one particular study was by a woman named Adina Shore, a PhD, where she did energy healing with um, Reiki, both um, from a distance and in person. And she had a control group and she had a um, Reiki group. And the people that were getting the healing didn't know whether they were going to be in the Reiki group with a strong Reiki energy um, healing or the control group. And what she showed was that the control group that did not get the energy healing basically had much less change. In this case, she was working on them getting um, rid of their anxiety and their fear and their depression, that there was a strong effect in the Reiki group, but not in the placebo group. So she showed that in fact, in this case, the placebo effect was not strong enough to account for the Reiki healing. And there's another study that was done at Yale University by Rachel Friedman and her colleagues, where they were looking at people after a heart attack and showing that those that were given Reiki healing um, compared to a control group showed um, definitely a much stronger effect on their physiology. And she said the effect was equivalent to the drug propanolol, which is typically given to patients to actually get their heart rate variability back toward normal. So she was saying, look, you don't even have to give them a drug. And the Reiki healing by itself brings the heart rate variability back to normal, equivalent to that of a drug. So this is a beautiful example of, hey, maybe we don't have to use all of those drugs. We can actually use Reiki healing in this case. Mm, that's so fascinating. Um, I remember there was like one thing you mentioned in your presentation about energy healing where people were put into um like they had their brains scanned while they were receiving oh, yes. a distant healing. Could you describe that? Because that yeah. one really blew my mind. Yeah, that, so that's Jean Achterberg that did the study in Hawaii. And she went to Hawaii and interviewed healers from a number of different traditions, energy healers from a number of different traditions. And she asked them in this case to pick someone that they felt a certain rapport with to do this experiment. And then she put the energy healer in one part of the hospital um, that was totally magnetically sealed from the person that was going to be their recipient of the healing. And that person was in an MRI, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine in another part of the hospital. And to control the study, she had the person that was sending the healing do the healing in two minute um, intervals that were randomized in time, which nobody else knew in advance. So they were simply told to do them by a experimenter that was sitting by their side. And when the experiment was, was over and they looked at the recipients, the physiology of their brain actually changed significantly in particular areas while that transmission was going on with these healers. And one of the places was the anterior cingulate cortex of the brain, which is a very important part of the brain that is active in meditation and also in hypnosis and other areas like that. So literally they were showing that there is a transmission um, through magnetically shielded rooms from the Reiki healer to the recipient in another part of the hospital. That is incredible. So when that part of our brain, the anterior cingular cortex, when that gets quieten down do you think that then enables us to experience the non-local consciousness that exists beyond like why do you think it is like 
what are the conditions that allow people to experience the non-local consciousness? Like, do we have to quiet those parts of our brain in order to experience the reality? That's a very good question. And I think that you'll now have me sort of taking a step um, backwards in a certain sense to talk about also the meditation studies and the psilocybin studies, because what has been found now, first of all, I'll tell you about the meditation studies. When someone quiets their brain down in meditation so that it's very, very still, and they go into a mystical state, maybe of unity consciousness, for example, and this feeling of infinite love and connectivity, when they put those people into a similar brain scanner, they find that the default mode network of the brain, also called the mind wandering network, which is a network in the brain that actually is the source of what I call our egoic narrative that's going on all day long. That's always giving me a uh, an ongoing um, story about what's happening at this moment in time and talking about my past memories and worrying about my future. That part of the brain turns way, way down in meditation when we're in these states of mystical unitive awareness and feeling peace and calm. Interestingly, that part of the brain is also the part of the brain that is turned way, way down when a person has a psilocybin experience. And interestingly, there is a direct correlation between the amount of the inactivation, the deactivation of the default mode network and the amount of unitive experience in those psilocybin studies. So that tells us that it's the quieting of the brain with psilocybin and with meditation that causes this unity awareness, not extra activity in the brain in one part of the brain or another. And typically the most important parts of this default mode network that are turned down are the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex. That's where they see a lot of this um, going down. And when you think about a near-death experience, of course, the entire cortex is turned off. So the default mode network as well as turned completely off in a near-death experience, all of these three giving us that same mystical unitive awareness. So to me, it's telling us that, in fact, it's not the brain that's creating our mystical unit of awareness. It's the lowering of the brain activity that allows, in a certain sense, these filters that I call the default mode network on the brain that are filtering out the true wider awareness because of all of our narrative sort of internal dialogue going on. It's those filters that are in the way. And when we remove the filters or reduce the filters, then we can experience this wider awareness of things going on around us. Mm, so it's like our normal day-to-day -day awareness. It's coming through this very narrow funnel. And then when we have a near-death experience or a psilocybin experience or meditation, the brain gets quietened down in those areas and it widens that funnel. And so we can experience more of that real expanded consciousness that's beyond the five senses. It's right. And I want to add one thing to that. And that is that it seems that we, our, our five senses by themselves limit an amazing amount of information coming in from the universe. We know that because our visual system has three visual pigments that only allow us to see certain wavelengths of vision and the same thing for hearing, et cetera. And it appears as if all of these different filters from the senses through the thalamus, through other parts of the higher cortex, like the default mode network, are all reducing our ability to have an expanded awareness going beyond our five senses. And 
when these filters are turned down or off, it's like suddenly we have an ability to be aware of what someone else is thinking, like, you know, a hundred miles away or a thousand miles away. There is like a transmission of non-local consciousness from them to us that is opened up when we become very, very still. And that is something, again, that my materialist framework can't explain. And I know um, I've been listening to the audiobook version of Infinite Awareness, and you have a section in there where you talk about how language really isn't an effective way to try and talk about non-local consciousness because the experience of it truly is ineffable. Um, and you have a part where you talk about Sanskrit and and the language of Sanskrit and how that is is maybe one of the the closest representations of trying to explain the experience of non-local consciousness. Could you talk a bit about the limitations of language? Oh, yes. I, I think this is very important. And I should mention that Ian McGilchrist um, is a psychiatrist, um, a, a psychologist and a PhD as well, who has done a lot of work in this area and of course written the book the master and its emissary talking about the left and the right brain the language centers of the brain versus the more holistic centers of the brain and how in fact what happens with our language centers is that once we create a word for a particular experience or phenomenon we automatically limit our experience um, of that phenomenon because it becomes sort of reified or concretized into our own understanding of the meaning of that word. And they say this has happened a lot throughout um, cultures of the world. And they even name certain cultures that have, um, for example, many more names for snow, for example, than we might if we're um, living, for example, for me in Arizona right now. And they then have a different experience of snow because they have more more words for it than we do. And it's the case all the time. It's like, on the one hand, we need language for communication and the very nature of language is to limit our awareness of an experiential phenomenon. Yes, I know that Eckhart Tolle in one of his books, he talks about how, you know, when humans go into nature, they immediately start you know, labeling all the flowers and like, look at how many trees I know the name of. But in just focusing on that labeling, you're not actually truly experiencing the essence of that thing, of that being. You're just focused on, oh, I know the name of it, which, yeah, like you said, like changes your experience of that thing. Um, what do you think, what would you say is the difference between how you experience life today with all of this knowledge and insight versus before you had your meditation experience? What's like the, the contrast? I think there are a number of things that are different. I mean, the first thing I would say is because my own mind wandering network slash default mode network of my brain, my egoic stories about myself did affect a lot of my uh, awareness of myself and the people around me. I had probably the usual fears and anxieties about, you know, my past things that had happened to me or worries about the future. And because now, since I meditate every morning, I start out 
with a quieter mind when I enter my day. And therefore, all of those parts of the brain are now sort of tuned downward. And so I can be more present with what's going on in the day. And I find that it allows me to experience things in a more joyful way being present. It's like I my old materials self might laugh at this, but I feel like I can really like um, commune with the world around me, with the plants and the animals at a deep level of awareness and feel a love and a connection with the universe around me. And it gives me therefore more compassion for the people around me, the plants and the animals and our planet. And therefore it also helps me have a sense of wanting to be more responsible for the well-being of everything around me. And I think that's for me one of the key differences when I've talked to people that have had meditative awakenings or near-death experiences is that they have a whole different understanding of their connection with others in the planet and then their desire to be of help to others in the planet. And looking not only at our present generation, but future generations and wanting to do whatever they can to really improve the well-being of everyone and everything around them. So what would you say is your ultimate goal with your work? Or what is like the the biggest message that you are hoping to to share with the world? You know, I think what it is is that whether a person has materialist sort of view leanings in terms of their own lens on the world, or perhaps more um, leanings of what I would call a post-materialist consciousness being fundamental perspective, I would simply ask for curiosity and openness. Because I think that what happens is that that egoic narrative tends to crystallize things down to being black or white. And the world is not black or white. The world is all of these beautiful shades of different colors. And I think that when we're open and we're curious to hearing someone else's experience and asking ourselves, well, could there be some truth in that? Maybe I can be open and really listen to it. Maybe I can begin to resonate with what they experienced. It might actually change us to having a um, broader lens on reality and therefore perhaps including a wider worldview than just one or the other. And, and also for me, it, I also feel a certain sense of compassion for those people that in some ways are, what's the word I want to use? It's like, they're so stuck in one perspective or another and not realizing that, um, there is a wide variation on, our lenses on reality. We're each looking at reality from one tiny perspective of our own individual lens. And there are lenses, you know, along the whole 360 degree circumference of what reality really is. And to accept that someone else might be looking at things from a slightly different point of view, and it doesn't mean it's wrong. And just having that curiosity and that openness, I think can open us to being perhaps more present with the other people and having more compassion and openness. Mm, that's a gorgeous answer thank you is there anything else you would like to mention that I haven't asked you about I think not I think that one of the things I simply want to say is that my life is a lot more joyful since I've had that original experience and begun to do more research in this area because of course I'm discovering more and more how many other people in the world have had similar experiences and I'm now interacting in a community of researchers doing this type of work. And it's exciting to be sharing within the work and also moving forward in terms of more and more research in the area. So if people want to find out more about you and your work, where should we point them? 
Well, I, my website is marjoriewoolacott.com. And of course, my book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind, gives you a lot of the details about my own transformation and my own research on why I believe consciousness is fundamental. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Marjorie. I really appreciate you and your work. And you're such an important and necessary bridge between the scientific and spiritual worlds. And I've got so much out of reading about your research. So thank you for everything you do. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you, Kaz. I love talking about this and I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast so you'll get a notification when I launch the next one. Before I go, I would like to give a shout out to Zachary Walter, who composed the gorgeous music that you hear in this episode. If you'd like to find out more about him and his musical compositions, check out ZacharyWalterMusic.com. All right, I'll see you next time.